Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We have the opportunity this morning, as we do every single week, to continue on in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, If you're newer with us, you're just sort of dropping into the middle of this, but uh, we sequentially have set our minds to work through portions of Scripture, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, sometimes even word by word. And so we have been doing that through the Gospel of Luke for over two and a half years, and we are officially in chapter 7. And so, we, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're getting somewhere, aren't we? I guess. Um, we come this morning to uh, three consecutive passages in chapter 7 in which we are once again reintroduced to this man named John the Baptist. Uh, last time we saw him was way back in chapter 3, uh, which was a long, long time ago, and he was if you remember, out in the wilderness preaching that message of repentance. It was a very strong message, a hard message. And so if you can remember back, that section ended with him in prison for calling out the adultery of Herod Antipas, um, who was essentially a petty king that was sleeping with his brother's wife. And so he throws John into prison for his public confrontation. And so in chapter 7, we now pick up the story with John in prison and his purpose in this section of the Gospel of Luke is going to be very significant. And so before we get into it, let me just read the passage that we're going to be looking at specifically, which is verses 18 through 23 of chapter 7. And again, this is the first of three passages that we're going to see over the next few weeks dealing with Jesus and John the Baptist. And the entire point is to declare that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, But there are, of course, also some other critical things that we're going to see as we we go along. So please follow along as I read now verses 18 through 23. Here's what Luke, this historian, records under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, And the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for another? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one, or do we look for another? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Well, for any of you who have been in the faith any length of time, you know that there are perhaps seasons or times in your life in which you have doubted. In fact, the church is filled at any given point in time with believing doubters. Many of you can perhaps resonate with the words of that father in Mark chapter 9 and verse 24, whose son was being thrown into convulsions as a result of a demon. And after Jesus casts out the demon and heals the son, the father looks at Jesus and says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There are many believing doubters within the church. This is not something unique to the history or the nature of Christianity, and certainly not something that is unique to you. Every genuine believer has gone through moments and seasons of life in which they have been tormented by the guilt of doubt. Certainly something which strikes a chord of fear or at least some level of concern in the heart of any true believer And because they wonder if their doubt is perhaps indicative to the true nature of their heart. Are they a genuine Christian? Are they an authentically 
saved person. And because, after all, if what it means to be saved is to possess the very Spirit of God within you, and therefore to have a truly transformed heart, then how could you possibly experience doubt or uncertainty? Well, that is a very common experience, and many of you perhaps know exactly what I'm talking about, but it can be an experience of great concern for any true Christian. In fact, it's very interesting, but if you were to examine the four Gospels, uh, anytime that you encounter a doubting person in the Gospels, it is always, and hear this, without exception, a doubting believer. That is to say, it is always one who has faith that doubts. And I think that should be of some encouragement to us. And I don't have a time to do a survey for you, but there are many reasons for why these various people fall into times of doubt and times of skepticism. Sometimes it's an issue of unresolved sin in their life. Sometimes it's an issue of incomplete or inadequate information. Sometimes it's simply an issue of immaturity or lack of right biblical knowledge and skill to rightly interpret certain matters regarding both life and faith. And sometimes, as we're going to see today, doubt is the result of a wrongful expectation. That is to say that sometimes we create certain expectations of God and certain expectations of the church and the gospel and what it is exactly that believing the gospel is actually supposed to produce for us. And then when those expectations don't come to fruition, the result at times can often be doubting. And so doubt can occur as a, wrong, as a result of a wrong view and expectation of Jesus and what he has actually promised for those who would follow him. But whatever it may be, it is also important to understand that doubt is, all, is not always something necessarily that is sinful, especially when it comes to a newer believer or an immature believer. Typically, newer believers are immature believers. And because for them, doubt is often just an issue of an incomplete faith, that is, an incomplete understanding of God's revelation in Scripture. That is to say that they've not yet thought through all the questions. They've not yet thought through all of the objections. They've not yet had the opportunity to filter all the experiences of life through that full revelation of of Scripture. And so as they encounter new circumstances and new arguments and new opposition or persecution, or as they have some kind of perhaps personal tragedy or loss, the result is that they might experience doubting. But only because they've not yet had the opportunity to work through that issue or those issues in an honest way. They've not yet had the opportunity to have their faith genuinely tested. And so as the new opportunity for testing arises, so also for a time can doubt. And so in that sense, then, I would say that doubt is something that can actually become useful for you. In fact, let me begin here by saying that there are honest forms of doubt, and that is the key qualifier. There are honest forms of doubt that are not necessarily a bad thing to have happen to you. That is to say, it's not a bad thing to have happen to you in the beginning. In fact, I like what one man writes about this. He says that while doubt is certainly a bad place to finish, it can serve you very well in the beginning. That is to say, it can be a very useful tool to mature the immature. And the reasons for that are multifaceted. There are many ways that this can work itself out in the life of a person, but essentially the capacity to doubt is not a bad place to begin. And primarily, if you think about it, is because doubt is connected to rationality. That is to say, it is connected to being created in the image of God. God has created us as rational beings. He's created us to think. He's created us with that ability to reason, but so that we might be able to discern truth from error. And so rationality is a crucial component, I would argue, to God's plan for salvation. 
fact, if God is going to create a people to whom he's going to reveal divine truth, and of course that happens primarily, we know, through the word of God, then it's essential that he give us the apparatus to therefore be able to sort out all the information and so that we might be able to come to a proper and rightful conclusion. And so as one man states, one of the features of that sorting process and one of the components of rationality is doubt. In other words, part of living the Christian life at times is the experience of skepticism. It is asking questions and weighing the evidence to discern truth. It is taking the word of God, it is then learning what it says, it is then weighing out the evidence of what it says, and then coming to a right and proper conclusion as to what it means by what it says. In fact, it is those professing Christians who have not done this that are typically led into all kinds of error. They just assume that what they have heard or what they have been told or perhaps what they've been brought up in has to be true. They've never weighed the teaching. They've never tested the claims. And so they spend their life at times being tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. There's no stabilizing foundation that was ever put into them. There's no true framework within them to be able to discern truth from falsehood. Furthermore, it is also those professing Christians who have not done this and have not been building upon a solid foundation, which, as we saw at the end of chapter 6, is a right and accurate understanding of the Word of God. It is those kinds of people who often at time, uh, end up apostatizing. That is, they end up abandoning the faith in unbelief. They reject Christ, they reject the gospel, and they end up, therefore, forfeiting true salvation. And so doubt and skepticism, especially in the beginning, I would say is not a bad thing to have. And because it forces you to dig down deep, as the illustration revealed at the end of chapter 6, it forces you to dig down deep to figure out truth. Figure out what God has actually said. Figure out what it is that you ought to believe. Figure out how your life and the experiences of your life squares with a proper understanding of what the Scripture teaches. In fact, those who merely enter into a kind of squishy, schmaltzy, sort of feel-good kind of faith are those that often end up abandoning the faith, and if not overtly, at least in practice. They might not deny God and the person of Jesus Christ intellectually, but they certainly have very little interest in following him as Lord. And because in all likelihood, they had a wrong understanding to begin with. They had a faulty interpretation. They had that shaky foundation. They were taught very shallow or superficial things, perhaps, regarding the person of Jesus Christ, and so they therefore have very false expectations of who he is and what his gospel is supposed to produce. And then when those expectations don't come to fruition, they think it's all just a worthless pursuit, if not resolve that it's an overt lie, and so they therefore abandon that which they were taught. And I have seen that many, many times. People are given a certain version of Christianity and what Jesus is supposed to do for them, and then when he doesn't do that for them or provide it for them, and because it's not what the gospel promised to them in the first place, they then abandon the faith. which of course simply means that they're not truly abandoning the true faith, rather they're simply abandoning what they thought was the faith. They never had a solid foundation. They never had an accurate understanding to begin with. And so when their expectations and what they thought was the truth begins to fail them, they then reject at that point that which they claim to believe. But a true believer who has a true understanding of the truth and where it is perhaps just a, an incomplete understanding of the truth, well, as they encounter new issues of life and new issues in the church and new issues within the scriptures and how all of that is supposed to square together, it can result in doubt and skepticism at times. But then when they have the opportunity to work through those issues in an honest way, that doubt can serve them very well. 
forces them to slow down and think through the issues in a genuine and thorough manner. In fact, that is the pattern that we see of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. The Bereans, if you remember that group of Jewish believers in a city called Berea, there were Jews who converted to Judaism or from Judaism to Christianity. And so when they had heard the gospel, when they had finally received that truth about Jesus Christ, the scriptures state that they received it with tremendous eagerness. They received it with enthusiasm. But then as they began to search through the scriptures, which in their case was Old Testament scripture, to see if what they had heard about Jesus was in fact true. In other words, a search that was motivated by doubt and skepticism, the payoff was the solidifying and strengthening of their faith. And so it was a healthy skepticism. This is the kind of doubt that leads you to a reasonable faith Following Christ as that sovereign Lord of the universe where he is that maker and sustainer of your soul, that is not a dumb and blind or anti-intellectual pursuit. Rather, that is a very reasonable and rational effort. And so while doubt is never a good place at all to finish your life, and because you will in very short order stand before your maker and judge to give an account, it can be a very good starting place for you. And that is essentially what we see here this morning with John the Baptist. Remember, John was that man who, in chapter 3, started out with such great confidence. He was a man who preached with boldness. He was unflinching. He was unwavering that which he declared. He was, if you remember, filled by the Holy Spirit since he was still in the womb. He was filled for that very purpose of declaring the identity of the coming Messiah, And yet now, as he sits in prison, and having previously come to certain conclusions based on some very special revelation given given to him by God concerning the person of Jesus, he now finds himself in this place of doubting. And so this is, I think, and I hope, going to be instructive for us. In fact, the entire point at this juncture in the Gospel of Luke is to reveal that, that unmistakable lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah who has come in flesh. But I think there are some very practical things for us to learn as we work through these verses. And so look with me, if you would now, please, to verse 18. And it is here in verses 18 through 21 that we encounter this doubting skeptic. And so notice how he begins, 18. He states, and the disciples of John reported to him about all these Things. Now, stop right there. First of all, what are the these things in the context? Well, this is in reference to everything that we have been seeing. This is in reference to the healing of that centurion slave, who, of course, was a Gentile slave. This is in reference to what we saw last time, where Jesus treks to the foothills to raise the dead son of a widow. And so in verse 17, notice he says that this report concerning him went out all over Judea and the surrounding district. And so I told you last time that this is where Jesus' fame and his celebrity status essentially explodes. These are tremendous reports. These are incredible feats of miraculous power. These are miracles, frankly, that only God can do. And he is doing them consistently. This isn't just some one-time event where some rumor just started to circulate. Rather, Jesus is traveling all around the region of Galilee, performing the most demonstrable acts of miraculous power before their very own eyes. And so this was astonishing. This was amazing to these people. And so as Jesus is doing this and the word is beginning to spread all the more, he is garnering massive crowds at this point, crowds that are willing to follow him wherever he goes. As we saw last time, they're even willing to follow him into the deep parts of the mountains. And so at some point, this news about him now reaches the ears of his cousin. That is, the ears of John the Baptist, who is now sitting in prison. And so as these disciples come to him, remember, John had his own following. He was no small-time prophet. And so he had his own disciples, and they come to him and report this news concerning Jesus. And so it is at this report in verse 19 that we see something that is very shocking. 
Everyone is amazed by Jesus. Everyone is wanting to see the show. They're all bringing out their sick. They're bringing out their lame. They're crippled. They're blind. Jesus is healing all of them. Remember, sickness and disease by this point has essentially been banished by Jesus in the area of Galilee. And so people understand how unique he is. They understand, in fact, how bizarre and mysterious this man is. He teaches as no one has ever taught. He heals as no one has ever healed. And he is not merely healing sickness, but he is now raising dead people. And so he is an utterly compelling figure. This is unprecedented. And so as all of this reaches to the ears of John in prison, his response, to us at least, is something that is very unexpected. And because this is the one to whom John has been pointing This is the Lamb of God, as he preached, who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one, as he declared, whose sandals he is unfit to untie. This is the one for whom he leapt for joy while still in the womb. This is the one whom he baptized in the River Jordan. This is the one whom, as Jesus came up out of the waters from being baptized, John hears that voice and testimony from the Father in heaven that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so this is Messiah. This is the expected one. He has come in power. He has come in authority. And he has come to establish the kingdom. And so in light of all of this truth and all of this revelation and now hearing these most amazing reports about Jesus and hearing about his teaching and hearing about his miracles, his response, notice, is not one of joy and belief at the coming of the Messiah, but rather his response is to question. This is bizarre. Notice Luke records in verse 19, then that in light of the news, John immediately summons two of his disciples, which you have to understand was an Old Testament practice for determining truth. This was a legal task, in fact, that he had handed to his disciples. These weren't just some random followers, rather they're functioning here as a kind of legal witness. In fact, you see that all throughout the Old Testament, it was something that was codified in Mosaic law, but whenever you wanted to determine the truth of something, you would always send two or three witnesses to investigate. In fact, that is exactly what Jesus himself picks up on when he lays out that process for church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. You will remember that the second stage in the discipline process is to be the sending of two or three witnesses to examine the claims. They are to investigate the situation. Why? Well, to determine truth. And so this is exactly what John does now as a faithful Jew. And so he summons two disciples, verse 19, sends them on mission to question Jesus. By the way, notice in verse 19 that Luke inserts his own commentary. This is something that is very rare in the Gospel of Luke. We saw it last time as well, but remember, Luke here is writing from an objective historical perspective, but he actually slips here, albeit under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he identifies Jesus as Lord. And so I just want to point this out because this is, at this point, a settled issue in his mind. This is no longer Luke trying to make an argument to Theophilus, the one to whom he is writing, for why Jesus, this man Jesus, is Messiah, why he is Lord. Rather, this has been clearly demonstrated by this point in the gospel. In fact, remember, anything that Luke has been saying could have been tested by Theophilus. He could have gone to these eyewitnesses himself that Luke interviewed that we saw in chapter 1 and test the accuracy of Luke's claims. And so this is a settled issue. Jesus is Lord. In fact, as I, remember, as I mentioned, this is the singular point that he is driving home in this entire section, which is likely why he inserts it here. And so here Luke records that John sends his disciples to the Lord, and so they are to question him now with his question. And so notice there to ask him, verse 19, are you the expected one, which was a technical designation in the Old Testament to reference the Messiah. But are you the expected one, or are we to look for another? And then in verse 20, when they come to Jesus, they tell him that John the Baptist has sent him. And then as very faithful disciples, they reiterate the exact question that John gave them to ask. And so they ask, are you the expected one, or do we look for another? 
Now, again, this is a very shocking question. You have to understand. Again, remember, he is a man who has been filled with the Spirit since he was in the womb. He leapt for joy while Jesus was near him, while Jesus was still in Mary's womb, chapter 1, verse 41. And then beyond that, he no doubt heard the testimony of his father, Zacharias, who was a priest, who, remember, prophesied that John was going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, and as he had received revelation from the angel Gabriel in chapter 1. John himself, again, was also given special revelation that Jesus was the Messiah, and because he was somehow able to identify Jesus as that Lamb of God, he understood that he would be the one who was to take away the sins of the world. And so as a result, he, he baptized him. He confessed him publicly as the Messiah, and he heard that testimony of the Father from heaven. And so now as he is sitting in prison and starts to hear these reports about his teachings, his miracles, even Jesus' own self-identifying statements that he is that one true Messiah, he begins to question. And so that is a very shocking thing. How could a man with such confidence be diminished to such doubt? Well, there's a reason for this, and hopefully as we go through it here, you're going to see that this is still a very common cause for doubt even in our day. But first of all, one of the reasons for why he is skeptical is because he had a very inadequate expectation of what Jesus the Messiah was supposed to do for him. Remember, he is sitting here now in prison. He has been sitting in prison at this point potentially for up to a year And so as you could imagine, this is a hardship that he is suffering very unjustly. And so part of his doubt is stemming from his thought of what the Messiah was supposed to do. In fact, turn with me, if you would, to chapter 3. Chapter 3, just to give you a little bit of reminder. Remember, John in this text here is preaching the coming mission and work of God's Messiah. He is identifying that divine task and what the role would be of the Messiah in the world and certainly within the nation of Israel. And so in chapter 3 of Luke and verse 9, he states these words. He says, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so we saw, as you might remember, that that is a statement of judgment. This is a statement regarding what the Messiah was going to do with regard to the apostate nation of Israel, a nation that had fallen into sin. They had fallen into mass rebellion against their God. Verse 10, and the crowds therefore began questioning him saying, then what shall we do? And so he goes on and he preaches then, as we saw in the nature of repentance, that they need to turn back, they need to abandon their ways and return to biblical faithfulness, they need to forsake sin, they need to pursue righteousness. And then in verse 15, he states, now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and here it is, and fire. Again, an unambiguous reference to judgment. Fire is that idea of purification. It's the idea of sorting out those who are faithful from those who are false. In fact, he makes that explicit then in verse 17, notice, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so again, you have to understand the context. John here is sitting in prison and enduring unjust hardship. And yet this comes immediately after he preaches his message here and that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come in fire, he's going to come in judgment, he's going to burn up the chaff. And in other words, what is the role of the Messiah? Well, in the first place, it's to reestablish righteousness. It is to execute judgment. It is to purify the world. Notice verse 17, his winnowing fork again is in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor. That is judgment. That is an act of purification. End of verse 17, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable 
fire. So this is what is in John's mind. This is what he has been preaching. Furthermore, you know that John had a very strong understanding of the Old Testament. Again, and especially because his father, Zacharias, was a priest, no doubt he would have thoroughly instructed John in the Old Testament. Not only would he have taught him the Old Testament in general, but after being struck mute by an angel in chapter 1 for the purpose of learning the ways of the coming Messiah and that his son would be that very forerunner of the Messiah, fulfilling, of course, Malachi chapter 4. In light of all that, you know that Zacharias had a very special interest then in teaching John all of those Old Testament passages that prophesied of what the Messiah would do. Because that was to be John's task. He was to make straight the way. He was to point to the Messiah. He was to be that divinely inspired mouthpiece to identify the true Christ. And so as the forerunner to the Messiah, John knew very well all those Old Testament passages concerning the role of the coming Messiah. And because if he was to prepare his way, then he better know what that Messiah was going to be doing. If he was going to be heralding the work of the Messiah, then it'd be critical that he know what that work be. And so make no mistake, he had a very particular expectation in his mind as to what this Christ of God would be doing. He had no doubt all those Old Testament passages running through him about how the Messiah would come and set all things right, that he would bear the government on his shoulders, that he would establish righteousness, that he would take the throne of his father David, that he would judge the world of its wickedness and corruption, that he would, in fact, reinstate the nation of Israel as that great nation for which all other nations would come and bow. And so he had a very clear picture from the testimony of Old Testament Scripture. And so here comes the Messiah, now after 400 years of silence, ready to conquer, ready to take back the nation, ready to take back its land and gain back its freedom from the oppression of Rome, ready to exalt the righteous and condemn the unrighteous. And so John, now thinking that Messiah has come and thinking that he has arrived in the person of Jesus, the report that he hears is not that this Messiah has been judging and condemning and purifying, but that he's been fraternizing with tax collectors in talking about grace and healing Gentiles, non-Jews. Now, you have to keep in mind here that John was a very fiery preacher. He was pure hellfire and brimstone. His message, again, was that of repent or die. This was not a message of compassion or love or mercy or grace. Rather, this was a message that you are a sinful object of God's eternal wrath, and the coming Messiah is here, and so if you don't get right and repent of your wicked ways, then he is going to filter you out as chaff and burn you in that eternal fire, which technically is a true message, right? And so this was his message. This is what he preached as one crying out in the wilderness, making ready the way. And so he has identified the Christ. He understands Jesus to be the Messiah. He understands him to be that Lamb of God. And so what is his expectation at this point? Well, that Jesus would now fulfill the message of what he, the forerunner, has been preaching. And yet, instead of hearing reports of judgment and condemnation, he hears reports of Jesus standing on the side of a mountain in places like the Sermon on the Mount, preaching things like, turn the other cheek, show grace, show mercy, give to the sinner, hear this, that which he does not deserve. And so how, in the mind of John, is that setting all things right? How is that laying an axe to the root of the tree? And so as John expects a Messiah of judgment and justice, he begins to doubt because Jesus seems to be merely a man of grace. And so he questions. 
He questions the validity of his identity. And again, why? Well, because John had a certain expectation. He was taught certain things. He was hoping for certain things. And when those expectations and what the Messiah was supposed to be and accomplish don't immediately come about, and in the way that he thought that they were supposed to come about, it now causes within him doubting. And that is something that is certainly true even in our day, is it not? There are many churches and teachers that teach a certain version of Jesus, or at the very least, uh, an incomplete version of Jesus. In the social justice version of Jesus, which is ubiquitous right now, Jesus is supposed to liberate you from all your oppressions and establish a certain kind of judicial utopia. In the therapeutic psychoanalytical version of Jesus, Jesus is supposed to solve all your anxieties and depressions and meet all of your felt needs. That is preached often because it is met with many consumers. In the health, wealth, and prosperity version of Jesus, Jesus is supposed to make you rich. He's supposed to make you happy. He is supposed to make you healthy. He is supposed to fix your marriage. He is supposed to fix your children. He is supposed to give you the job of your dreams. He is supposed to give you a full and lasting satisfaction and deliver to you all the goals of all your pursuits in all of life. And so there are many versions of Jesus. And therefore, many expectations of what Jesus is supposed to produce for you. And then when following him or following some form of spirituality, some form of church commitment, some form of Jesus doesn't actually accomplish those things for you, then the result is often doubt. And in many cases, the result is even resentment and bitterness turns into this sort of anger, if not overt hatred for God. Which again is why Jesus taught in chapter 6 that it is critical that you submit yourself to a faithful teacher. One who will rightly handle the word of God. One who will rightly teach with accuracy the truth of what he has revealed. The truth of what is there. And so if the end result of that kind of experience isn't a full falling away from Jesus when God fails to deliver you what some preacher has promised that God will deliver to you, at the very least, you've got a very weak faith that never matures. And because it is a life spent chasing that which you want fulfilled. Instead of a life seeking to deny yourself, as Jesus calls you to do, and in order to conform your life into what Jesus has truly called you to be. And that is something that has always been prevalent throughout the history of the church. And so John here doubts for a moment because what he thought about the Messiah created an expectation within him. And when that expectation was not being fulfilled, faith turns into skepticism. And to be fair to John, it's not that John was taught something that was overtly false. He was instructed rightly from the Old Testament. He was taught the truth of the Old Testament scripture, but without question, he was also pulling from much of that religious Judaism of the day and much of that rabbinical teaching And so he wasn't given the whole picture. He was given something through sort of a skewed perspective, a skewed interpretation of what those Old Testament passages were teaching. He wasn't given the full panorama of how those Old Testament passages of the Messiah were going to be fulfilled in their specifics. And so the common teaching within Israel in this day was that the Messiah was supposed to come and be some kind of conquering military leader. He was to come and free the nation from the oppression of Rome. He was to take back the land. He was to reinstate the nation as that great global power where the Davidic throne would be reestablished. And so while that is true, because the Old Testament prophesies of that being true, 
And while it is still true, and something as we know from Revelation chapter 20 is something that's going to happen in the millennial reign of Christ, the nation in this day thought that it would happen in their time and in their way. And so they had certain expectations. In fact, it is why Jesus amassed such a large following. They were starting to think that perhaps he was indeed the man. He was that great conquering leader, they thought, who was going to knock off the Romans. And so when that didn't happen, and as they thought that it should happen, the result was an eventual rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And so the nation, as you know, fell into tremendous unbelief. And so in the case of John here, he didn't fall into unbelief, he just fell into skepticism. In fact, I think it'd be very difficult at this point for him to actually fully reject Jesus as the Messiah, and because, again, he had all of those experiences. He had that special revelation from God to be able to identify Jesus as the Christ, so he can't just so quickly abandon Jesus as this Messiah. Rather, perhaps he just needed to adjust his expectation. That is, instead of trying to make Jesus fit into his paradigm of what the Messiah is supposed to be and therefore do in his wisdom, he knew that he had to conform his own expectation into what Jesus was actually teaching, which would have been incredibly radical and because it would mean that he would have to believe against the reigning theology of the day. In fact, notice it's very interesting, but in his doubt and skepticism, what does he do when he doubts? Well, he doesn't go and find a rabbi and compare his thoughts with the reigning thoughts and teachers of the day, but rather notice he goes directly, and this is key, directly to Jesus himself. That is a very important thing to observe. When you are suffering doubt, the best place to go and the only place to go is always the word of God. It is always Jesus Christ that is always returning to his word and to let his word test your thoughts rather than your thoughts test his word. And because he is that final source and arbiter of truth, not us. He is the standard. If you are trying to discern truth based upon your experiences and what you were taught in the past, you will always be disappointed. And because your experiences and your expectations will never be fulfilled if they are not in full conformity to the truth of what God has revealed. And so in his doubt, John does the exact right thing. He goes directly to the source. He goes directly to the Word of God, which John tells us in the Gospel of John is Jesus. And so in verse 21, notice Jesus doesn't immediately answer the question with words. Rather, notice Luke states, and at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. Now, I have told you in past that the singular purpose of miracles is always to confirm the message of the messenger, right? That is the purpose of miracles. You get two prophets who show up to town, both claiming to be the Messiah. Which one do you believe? You believe the one who's able to perform signs and wonders in accord to the power of God. And because in this day, that was the authenticating mark that God was with you. In fact, you might remember those words of Nicodemus to Jesus in John chapter 3. He said, Rabbi, we know that we know that you have come from God as a teacher. How? Well, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so they understood the purpose of miracles. They understood the purpose of signs and wonders was always for the purpose of recognizing the true prophet. In fact, as you comb through all of Scripture, miracles and the ability to perform miracles were a very rare occurrence. We sometimes think that these things were always just happening. In fact, there are only three periods in all of history in which miracles were even present. 
You had miracles in the days of Moses, who was a prophet. You had them during the times of Elijah and Elisha, who were prophets. And then you had them during Jesus' earthly ministry, who, of course, he is the great prophet. And that leaked a little bit into the ministry of the apostles, who were also very prophetic. And they were basically functioning as the extension of Jesus during the inception of the church. Yet Jesus, the cornerstone, the apostles lay that foundation. Now the church is being built on that foundation. And so they were unique. But that is it, three times. And so miracles were not something that were common, nor could just anybody perform them. They were always given to a select few people in Scripture during very select times in redemptive history. And so they were given to a very unique person, but for the purpose of identifying them as the prophet or authoritative mouthpiece of God. And so he was the one upon whom God's authority and power rested, and therefore the one to whom you should listen. And so as you know, there were Old Testament prophecies given that stated that the coming Messiah would, of course, be accompanied by many signs and wonders and miracles. In fact, that is what would set him apart. That was what would help authenticate his identity. And so in front of these two disciples of John, they receive an immediate and private explosion of power. Jesus displays for them divine authority. By the way, that is not something that Jesus ever did for the Pharisees, though they demanded he do it. He never performed for them signs and wonders. He never presented displays of divine omnipotence. They only saw it on the fringes as he was dealing with those to whom he wanted to reveal himself. And because their issue was one of unbelief, they were already rejecting him within their hearts. But the issue of John and the issue of the disciples, again, was not unbelief. Rather, it was merely doubt. They were believing, but they needed help in their skepticism. An important lesson, by the way, during times of doubt for you, again, all you have to do is simply go to him. He knows your heart. He already knows the state of your belief. He understands that you might have a wavering or a weak faith at times, but he also understands that you have faith. The one who is genuinely seeking truth, God is always faithful to provide assistance in that. But the one who comes in unbelief and is not interested in truly seeking truth, then they ought not to be shocked at the state of their unbelief. They ought not to be shocked that God doesn't reveal themselves himself to them. They ought not to be shocked that when they open up his word, they're only met with boredom and misunderstanding. They are not a truth seeker. They are not genuinely interested in knowing the identity and purposes of Jesus. They're not interested in understanding the ways of God. But for the one who comes in doubt, but is genuinely seeking the truth, God is always faithful to reveal himself to you. He desires to be known. John was looking for a military conqueror. He was not looking for a homeless rabbi who would eventually be crucified on trumped-up charges of blasphemy, which is to say that God will reveal himself to you, but he will reveal himself to you as he desires to reveal himself to you. God is not in the business of giving you what you think you need in a Savior, but he is in the business of providing for you what you truly need in a Savior. There are so many looking for God to fulfill what they think that he needs to fulfill. There's so many looking for miracles and power and health and prosperity and relationships and superficiality. But, but hear me when I say this. He loves his own far too much to not give to them what they truly need. And so you do not need salvation from temporary oppression, despite the message of the day. You do not need salvation from anxiety. You do not need salvation from poverty. All of that is to come in eternity, but what you need right now, and hear this, what you need right now is a salvation from self. You need salvation from sin and Satan and death, those three great enemies that the Bible declares you need salvation from. 
You need salvation from God himself. You need salvation from his just judgment of sin. In fact, that is essentially what Jesus says to John. Notice after confirming his message with power and wonder in verse 21, he then answers with words in verse 22. And it says, and he answered them and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leper are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, this is significant because Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. That is why some of you might have it capitalized in your Bible. Isaiah 61 is one of the clearest and most explicit Old Testament prophetic passages that declare the coming work of the Messiah. It's essentially his resume. This is what he has come to accomplish. In fact, it was the very content of Jesus' first sermon in chapter 4 of Luke, if you can remember, where he launches his messianic ministry. And so he is about to begin his three-year ministry, and he begins there by preaching in the synagogue from this very passage in Isaiah. And so after he reads the, the text to the people, Luke records that he then sits down and tells the people that today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the first task as he began his ministry was to identify himself as the very Messiah of Isaiah 61. And when we work through that text in chapter 4, what I pointed out for you was the key verb is to preach. That was the task of the Messiah. But what is so fascinating in our passage in chapter 7 is that if you go back and you read Isaiah 61 from where Jesus is quoting you'll notice that he leaves off the part that John would have wanted to hear, which is the part about how the Messiah has come, but to free the prisoner. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news. Again, preaching. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. In other words, what is John saying, Jesus saying to John? Well, he's saying that I am Isaiah's Messiah. I am the coming one. I am the expected one, but I am not the Messiah that you think that I am supposed to be. In other words, I have not come for personal or social liberation and fulfillment as you have conceived it, but I have come for something far greater and something far more eternal. I have not come to bring a temporary earthly deliverance, but I have come to provide an eternal spiritual deliverance. In other words, all of your Old Testament understanding of me is correct, but it is also utterly inadequate. I have come to deliver, I have come to free, I have come to heal, but not as you understand it. And so in a very ironic answer, he tells these disciples, John, go and tell him that I am the Messiah, but you're still going to die in prison. And again, why? Well, because the role of the Messiah is not to give you your best life now, but it is to establish for you something eternal. He did not come to overthrow Rome, but he came to be slaughtered on a cross. And so in verse 23, he ends here with the beatitude, which is actually the entire point of the passage. And notice he states, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The term here for offense is scandalizo. It's the idea of being scandalized. It's the idea of not stumbling or not being tripped up or... Falling. In fact, it's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he states in verse 23 that we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified, which to the Jew is a stumbling block or a scandal, and to the Gentiles, folly. Why is he a stumbling block? Why is he a scandal to the Jews? Well, because the coming Messiah in their mind was supposed to be that great conquering military leader who's supposed to wipe out the Romans. He's supposed to lead the nation in triumph. He's supposed to establish the throne of David. 
And which, by the way, is something that the Jews today are still looking for in their Messiah. They're still looking for that great political and military leader to make their name great again. There's no way that Isaiah's Messiah in their mind could ever be crucified unless, of course, you read chapter 53, which Jews still have absolutely no idea what to do with. And so this kingdom is supposed to be earthly. It's supposed to be now. It's supposed to be a conquering political entity. And so Jesus is, to the Jew, scandalous. He is an offense to everything that they understand Messiah to be. There is no way that he could ever be the coming one. By the way, Zechariah chapter 14 states that a day is coming in which the Jews will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn. They will recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one who has come to establish a kingdom. He has come to bring the reign and the rule of God. They, they will recognize him when he returns because he will sit upon the throne of David in that earthly millennial kingdom after which he will usher in that eternal kingdom. But for now, he still remains to the nation of Israel a scandal. He is that stumbling block. He is a rock of offense. He is not the one for whom they merely have doubt, but he is the one in whom they do not yet believe. But not so for John. John was not an unbeliever. Rather, he was merely for a short time a doubter. And what is so fascinating is that after this Simple report back to him. Nowhere in Scripture do we ever read again of John asking Jesus a single question. He heard the report. His disciples brought back testimony concerning the truth of Jesus. And so at this point in the story, John has now fulfilled his divine purpose. He would not be released from prison. And because his purpose on this earth was to point to Jesus as the Christ. That was his calling. And so he had done that. He had fulfilled that divine task. In fact, he is still fulfilling that role within Holy Scripture as he is still pointing for us to the identity of Jesus as the Christ. And so now that he has fulfilled all that Malachi had prophesied that the forerunner would fulfill his time here on earth in the Gospels, was coming to an end. He was faithful to his task. He was faithful to that commission set upon him. And so in chapter 10 and verse 14 of the gospel of Matthew, we read that Herod shortly after this has John beheaded in prison. He has his head brought to him on a silver platter to bring to some girl. In verse 12, Matthew records that the disciples then come and take away the body for burial. They then report this to Jesus. And then in verse 13, when Jesus hears of this, the text states that he then withdraws from them in a boat to a lonely place all by himself. And why? Why does he do that? Because the greatest man who had ever lived, chapter 7, verse 28 of Luke and whose singular point on this earth was to proclaim the identity of Jesus as the Christ was dead. Just a foreshadow of what was to come for all who'd associate with Jesus. The time of the forerunner was over. The time of the Messiah had now come. This was the legacy of John The entire identity of John was wrapped up in making the identity of Jesus known. Perhaps the greatest thing that could ever be said of you. And he was no scandal to him. He needed no other answer. He needed no miracle. Rather, he died believing that Jesus was who he said he was. He did not need a miracle to trust in. Rather, he needed a word to believe in. Power is in the word. And that is the question for you this morning. Is Jesus a scandal to you? Is he a stumbling block to you? 
Do you reject him and his message as folly? Do you trip on him because he's not giving to you what you feel the God of the universe is supposed to be giving to you? Or do you recognize him for who he truly is? That is the most critical question that you will ever be confronted with. And because attached to that question is eternity. And so Jesus has come to free the oppressed. He has come to heal you of all your diseases, as Psalm 103 talks about. He has come to release the unjustly imprisoned. He has come to set all things right, but he will fulfill that messianic task in eternity. That is not a temporary promise. That is an eternal one. And so if you have doubt this morning over the issue of Jesus, the best thing that you could ever do is do what John did. And that is that instead of trying to make Jesus conform into your expectations of what you think he should be or what you think he should be doing for you right now, the best thing that you could ever do is simply go to him, but for the purpose of conforming your understanding into what he has actually said. And how do you do that? Where do you find that? How do you discover the answer to any issue of what is true well, you do it by going to the Word. That is where you find the very mind of Christ. That is the realm in which the Spirit always works within the heart of a person. You will not find answers by going to professionals. You will not find answers by going to educators. Rather, you will only find answers by going to the eternal Word. It is that one reality that has been forever settled in heaven, as the psalmist writes, That is to say that it is fixed. It is unchanging. The word of God is immovable. It is transcultural. It does not fade. It does not disappoint. It is the standard for truth. And beloved, what is so wonderful is that you have so much more than John did. You have in your hands right now the full revelation of God. You have the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and even the intercession of Jesus Christ in the Gospels and the book of Acts. John never had that. You have the full revelation of the New Testament epistles where you have everything that you need for both life and godliness, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. You have the truth for how it's all going to end in the book of Revelation. And so unlike John, you have knowledge of what the kingdom is actually going to look like and how it will be ushered in. And so you have a fuller truth. You have a divine revelation sitting in your lap right now. And it is completely sufficient for both life and salvation. And so let me just close here by saying that for those of you who believe, there will always be times of doubt and skepticism. As you're confronted with opposition, as you are tested by various trials and hardships. But the truth is that you are never without hope. You are never without a divine answer to everything. Perhaps you're one who believes, but at times still finds yourself needing to cry out, still, Lord, help my unbelief. And so it is in those times where you must train your mind always to instinctively go to the word of God alone. And because as Paul goes on, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I should say, he states, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. But we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God. And why? Well, so that we may know the things freely given us by God. You have the spirit so that you might know. Things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining the spiritual with spiritual, 
But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And why? Well, for they are foolishness to him. And so he cannot understand them because they are spiritually praised, meaning you got to have the Spirit. But he who is spiritual, meaning has the Spirit, appraises all. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Hear this, but we have the mind of Christ. Present tense. We have the mind of Christ. You don't got to find it. You don't got to dig deep for it. Rather, you have it. Where is that mind contained? Well, it's contained in Holy Scripture. The mind of the divine, eternal word, Jesus Christ, has been preserved in the eternal and scripturated word. And it sits in your lap. It is the source for truth. It is that final arbiter for how you can be certain of all things, both now and eternal. And so you are in a very blessed position, especially if you're one who doesn't stumble over the person of Jesus. And so let me end by just asking, so who do you understand him to be? Is he Isaiah's Messiah? Or is he that rock over which you too will trip? Is he the source of your salvation, or does he scandalize your understanding of truth? That is the question, and that is the only question that ultimately matters. Let's pray. And so, Father, I do ask that Jesus Christ would be our hope and our delight. Pray for all in this room that we might be able to say that we know, that we believe, and that we most certainly love the gospel of your son. My hope and my prayer is that this word which you've given to us in your providence this morning might not leave us unreflective, but that it might cause us by the power of your spirit to better understand that in Jesus Christ you have come to us, that we might understand in a fuller way your compassion and grace toward the sinner you knew that there was nothing that we could do, and so you did it for us. And the sending forth of your son to pay that penalty that we could not pay. Pray for all here this morning that they might see a little bit more the glory of what it means that you've come to rescue us. That you send forth your son to take on flesh, to take on the weakness of what it means to be man, but so that you might enter this world to rescue us from the clutches of our own self-destruction and sin. That you've not come just to save us, but you've come to redeem us, to make us new, to make us whole again. So may we come, may we bow down at the foot of your cross. May we find comfort in knowing that you are a God who loves to save the sinner. So impress this truth upon us. I ask that you would put it in our minds, that you would seal it within our hearts, that we might find a true rest by faith alone, and you alone. And so I do ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.